Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, he's our guest, author and podcaster, Tom Jackson. Sometimes I feel so low down and disgusted. Can't help but wonder what's happening to my companions. Are they lost or are they found? Have they counted the cost it'll take to bring down all their earthly principles? They're going to have to abandon. There's a slow, slow train coming up around the bend. I had a woman down in Alabama. She was a backwards girl, but she sure was realistic. She said, boy, without a doubt, have to quit your mess and straighten out. You could die down here. Be just another accident statistic. There's a slow, slow train coming up around the bend. Big-time negotiators, false healers and woman-haters, masters of the bluff and masters of the proposition. But the enemy I see wears a cloak of decency. All non-believers and men-stealers talking in the name of religion. And there's a slow, slow train coming up around the bend. I'm scared. Yeah, masters of the bluff. I've never heard that before. No, it's great to hear those words out loud like that, masters of the bluff. Yeah, can you imagine anyone being a master of the bluff or a big-time negotiator these days? <laughs> Gee, no, no. I don't think that, would, that would fly in any any respect. So, uh, so Tom, well, we know that we know the song, uh, but explain why you chose that song. Well, to some extent, I kind of got on uh, the Dylan train with "Slow Train Coming" with the album this song comes from. Hmm. At home, we had one Bob Dylan record, the greatest hits, the nineteen sixty seven UK version. And I'm told it was the only record my parents had for a while. And I think my mother had chosen it. And she doesn't really like music, but she liked, uh, I think she liked the intellectual side of the whole Bob Dylan thing. The idea that this was clever poetry. Mm. Um, and I, I grew up listening to that when, as soon as I could get to a record player. And so I knew that uh, folky sound. And I liked, I liked that, the sort of politics of it all and the idea of engaging with the world. And then much later, I was starting to buy records, a bit of money in my pocket. And there was a thing that used to go on in those days, and I suppose it still does, but I was growing up in the 70s and then into the 80s, and you would buy contemporary records, records from the charts. But I had an interest in the 60s at the same time. So you had your three or four pounds in your pocket, and you had to decide, am I going to buy Outlando's D'Amour, or am I going to buy Rubber Soul? So you have a sort of parallel life, in, and we all do in culture. Culture happens, you know, all hap- it all happens at once. Hmm. Uh, the modern stuff and the old stuff. And um, I bought myself uh, Budokan, the live album, when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is a fantastic kind of way to find out some more songs, actually. There were songs on that that hadn't been on the greatest hits. So suddenly I knew about I don't know, Ballad of a Thin Man, One More Cup of Coffee. But I didn't much care for the production. I didn't all these flutes everywhere and mm. um, the backing vocalists. And this was this was all rather strange. But I thought this is a great way to hear some songs. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm now going to have to just keep buying the new records when they come out. I've, I've kind of caught up in a bit of a rush. Uh, Slow Train Coming was announced. I read about it in the in the music press. I couldn't afford to buy it, so I waited about a month or two. And of course, it ended up in the bargain bin. 
I don't know if that was a <laughs> reflection on its sales. I think everything ended up in the bargain bin, yeah. really. But two ninety nine, our price records, Croydon High Street. I bought the record and took it home, and I, I just played it till the grooves almost ran out. Um, and I, I really liked it. I, I knew it had faults. I knew this wasn't the classic, but I found that whole Mark Knopfler guitar thing really appealing. And he still had this rage. Dylan had this absolute vitriol against the bad stuff in the world. I didn't pay too much attention to the fact that he thought he'd found a solution for it, but I was reveling in the way he was excoriating the bad stuff. I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, it's a very angry album. Was I it mean, pitched as a comeback at the time? I mean, was the, was the music press going, you know, his best since or whatever, as they oh, all no, do now? No, 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 I think it was pitched as he's got religion. Right. Uh, what's going on? You know, this was unheard of. He wasn't known as being godless, but obviously he was a man who organized religion, flesh-colored Christ that glow in the dark. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't really very keen on priests and, and, and teachers of that kind. So I think I think the press were very wary but, you know, I've, I've since learned that he had this real ambition to make a commercial record, despite the fact that the, the content was going to be difficult. He wanted this to be a slickest record yet. And, and I think it is. And I think it's a lot of people find that. Than, than street legal. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, so more listenable. And, and I don't know if that appeals to everyone. I, listenable is a really good word. But if you listen carefully, you know, it's not a smooth record. It's not a pleasant record. But that's kind of, you know, I, find, I find that kind of tension really appealing. I mean, two words, Jerry Wexler, yeah. you know, it's that he, he and Daniel Lanois are the only two producers I can think of pre Jack Frost that have really, really, really produced those albums and given them a, a sound and a sheen and a kind of uh, a slickness, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I'm actually reading, um, have you ever read this book liner notes by Bill Flanagan? Which no. I just Oh, the old I, MTV Bill Flanagan. Uh, I don't know anything really about him, except that he's written, he wrote the liner notes for Trouble No More. And he, he's interviewed Dylan lots of times yes, in yes, like, the New York Times. Interviewer of choice, really, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But he, well, he wrote this book called uh, Written in My Soul, which, which was the first book of interviews with writers, songwriters, uh, singer-songwriters, rather, in the mid-'80s. I've just read the interview he did with Dylan. I mean, he did every, everybody on it, and uh, Dylan's is one of the longest interviews. But anyway, the reason I mention it is because uh, I've just read Dylan on producers. You know, he said, so, you oh. know... Um, how do you, you know, work with producers? And Dylan, Dylan said, uh, most producers are like the guy who picks me up from the airport. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the guy who arranges the meals in the studio. And, you know, I produce, he basically says, I produce my own stuff, except I'm sure he would never have said that about Jerry Wexler. He seems to have been quite uh, pliant, I think, during Slow Train Coming, because he then got very difficult around Shot of Love. He had this idea, he wanted to get this stuff on tape quickly and well, and I think he was prepared to take direction. And the whole Mark Knopfler thing seems to have gone smoothly. I don't think Knopfler doesn't talk about it, but I don't think this was because you know they obviously worked together together later. And it seems to have worked in a way that Saved didn't, because I mean Saved is is same studio, I think. But I believe that they were in the middle of a tour and they drove, you know, they drove through the night on a bus, pitched up at Muscle Shoals, tried to nail these songs that they all knew very well from doing them live, and then just went back to work. And it, it lacks something hugely doesn't it saved compared to slow train coming yeah and then saved i mean saved is the, is the kind of pure gospel sound isn't it and slow train coming mm. isn't really gospel i don't know what it is it's a kind of slinky r&b with a, yeah. with a gospel flavor 
Totally. Um, I was just going to say slinky. That's exactly the, you know, that's, that's the word for it. That's why it's so, I mean, musically, it's so terrific. Um, yeah. But he, won, he won a Grammy, didn't he? He won a Grammy for uh, Serve Somebody, uh, Dylan. He? Yeah, for Best Male Rock Vocal uh, in 1979. He, he, he won, I, I don't know if that was his first. He also Grammy. got one for Cold Irons Bound. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that, <laughs> I'm not one of these people that thinks awards mean anything, but but no. yeah, it was it was there was something different, wasn't there? Because he was he was endeared to the rock fraternity with that album and with that song. I mean, he played he did it on Saturday Night Live as well, didn't he? Yeah, and I think that was a very stressful appearance by all accounts. It's it's interesting this whole sort of notion of whether producing a Christian album and Slow Train Coming is a Christian album as opposed to a gospel album, if that makes sense. It's not, mm. you know, yeah. Gospel, I think, is pretty acceptable to rock. M- musically, it's very hard sometimes to distinguish between rock and roll, R&B and, and gospel. There's a, there's a real overlap. Certainly there's vocals. But the notion of this out-and-out Christian album, I think it was quite a brave move, but, but by all accounts, he was absolutely blinded by this conversion he'd had and, and this place he hung out at this vineyard place. Well, you hear it. I mean, the, the, the live, uh, the bootleg set, which covers this period, really gives you a flavour of the the kind of absolute religious passion of it. Mm. And then what they don't show on that, although I think maybe, maybe it turns up on the DVD, are these weird on-stage rants that he did. Yeah, they're curiously edited, aren't they, out? Yeah, I mean, I think probably to everyone's benefit now. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of charming that he wants to preach because he believes this stuff. But this is not the Bible he's preaching. It's a very specific kind of evangelical uh, political stuff, which, which, which actually blends into being very unpleasant and bigoted at times. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, no, he was, he was all about, uh, at least a lot of it was about uh, Armageddon in the Middle East, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Armageddon was was sort of hangs over the whole, well, the, all three albums really. But I mean, he 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 moves away from this. Uh, by the time he gets towards Shot of Love, he's losing that fire, I think. But I mean, the, I kind of bookend this to some extent because I then went to see this tour uh, at Earl's Court. Mm. So I went to see it on the twenty seventh of June, nineteen eighty one. Stalls tickets were £8.50 plus 30p booking fee. I've got, the tic- I've got the ticket in front of me. Mm-hmm. They had the booking fee even back then. Yeah, but handwritten. So, <laughs> so I think that was... Maybe there was a reason for it back then, but yeah. Yeah, I think so, we, we probably went to one of those booths they used to have. I still do. There was booths where you could go and buy a ticket. They had them on uh, Argyle Street now, opposite the Palladium. You go and buy tickets from, from these booths. I think the 30p was for him. But £8.50 would be what? A record and a half? It's hard to tell because, you know, music's obviously become so devalued. Was it had Shot of Love just come out or been out for some time? Shot or? of Love wasn't out yet. It came out okay. a couple of months later. So okay. Saved had been out. I'd, I'd skipped Saved because that sleeve. I know. It, it's the I, worst sleeve I wanted ever. to like it, but, I mean, it just reminded me so much of something you'd see on a school Christian Union house party or something. It, there was no because slow train coming. It's a train. That's fine. There's lots yeah. of trains in pop music. That's absolutely fine. We like trains, mm. but the hand coming down was just too literal, mm. um, and I think that killed it for a lot of people. Though actually, you know, of course, I've rediscovered it since, and it's a great record. It has some fantastic songs, and it's, 
actually very inspirational at the moment, bits of it. The song's like pressing on, I think, frankly. Yeah. That's the song I sing under my breath more than any at the moment. Mm. Saved is not nearly as bad as time would have us remember. Whenever I listen to it, I think, this, this is not so bad. This is not so bad. It sounds a bit antiseptic, and all of the songs were done better live, but we've got that on the box set now, and I could see why he wanted to do a live album, and I think the record company said, no, you have to do these in the studio, and it, it never, it sounds tired, but it sounds I think he'd fine. already done the album. I think that's the problem. Oh, yes. He decided right. afterwards he wanted yes. to do it live, which I think, and I don't know why, because he hated going in the studio. Um, and they always fought, and you know, didn't he never wants to go into the sound booth and all this stuff. Um, I, I don't. How did just as an aside, how does he get such good sound now on his records? Has he finally sort of submitted to proper production? I don't know. He's got. I mean, the engineering. The, is it Chris Shaw who's the engineer who who's on Rough and Rowdy Ways? I mean, he God, that man knows what he's doing. It sound that record sounds impeccable. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, um, I think he's. If you just listen to any of his current stuff, like for instance, I had the uh, Luke's. Bob Dylan chronological playlist, which I've been listening to the last couple of weeks. So I was listening to, to something from uh, that happened to be on Saved. I think I was listening to Are You Ready? Possibly. Anyway, the next thing that came up on this uh, shuffle was I've made up my mind to give myself to you mm. from Rough and Rowdy Ways. And I thought... He is so much more relaxed. I mean, it's just like night and day. It's just, well, you were talking about the sound. I just thought he probably now is ready to say, you know, you take care of it. You set the levels, you know, I'll just sit here and read a book until you're done. Mm. It just, it's so much more relaxed. Personally, I have, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get saved. I, I got slow train coming, listened to it once and was, horrified you know i was young and I, I i didn't want this in my house i i i may have even taken it to the salvation army and gotten it out of the house How appropriate <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but i i just i just found it i just thought the, these are i want to hear questions not answers yeah uh, from dylan that's all i want is unanswered questions i don't want answered questions i don't want you to tell me you know, that I'm going to go to hell. What the fuck, man? Mm. I mean, but of course, you know, I think, you know, it, there are questions in it, of course, because he's he's the man who posed these questions for so many years. And, and, and you're absolutely right. That philosophy, that idea of being open to different responses. He then gets this total, all-consuming, transformative uh, change comes across him. Uh, and and the particular place he was studying appeared to give him all the answers. Everything was there. So why is he so angry? <laughs> he, he's got the answers. Everything should be fine. But he's furious. He's absolutely furious. I mean, as furious as ever, I think. more Perhaps more than he had been. And with a focus as well. I, I feel like he's aware the answers aren't really there. And to go back to the Earl's Court show, that is the precise show that's on the box set, the 27th of June, 1981. I know. Isn't so that you, amazing? Yeah. I, I sort of thought, oh, it probably is. Oh, it might be, but it yeah. won't be. And I checked the date and I had I found the ticket, which I'd stuck into my copy of Shot of Love, like you do or you did yeah. or you, you should. <laughs> Definitely, if you can. And of course, you know, these are paper tickets as opposed to those cardboard computer tickets we have now, yeah. if we have tickets at all. And, I, you know, of course, I listened back and... Because I thought for a while, I couldn't remember. I, I remembered there being regular Dylan songs in the show, not mm -hmm. just the Christian stuff. But I only half remembered it. It's a long time ago. Um, and I remember enjoying it, but I was going to enjoy it anyway. 
he could have done anything. I'd have enjoyed it because, you know, I was young and I was out of the house, you know. Mm. And so, but no, I listened back. And of course, it's, it's by this stage of the tour, he'd somehow seen the writing on the wall, as it were, and and had started to put absolute, you know, stone cold classics into the show. And I think he was moving away from the Christian thing. Um, in many ways, I mean, certainly in terms of performance, I do I do think it's interesting this notion of going all in on something because he on the live shows that the, the, the tour, particularly in America, they weren't they weren't even Dylan shows. They were Dylan events. They were they were church services, really, mm-hmm. and rightly people complained if they'd expected to go along hearing you know, leopard skin pillbox hat, and they got this. This is a big difference. But having gone so solidly into that, he seemed to be able to walk away from it quite gently without it being a terrible shame or without it being a terrible climb down. He just kind of started to sneak the songs back in. And I wonder if he's quite good at walking away from stuff because he changes a lot. So maybe that's what you do. You just kind of walk away. I think he floats away. <laughs> you know, because it, it was kind of more floaty. Like, is he there? Where is he? I mean, I, to me, the, the reason I think he was so angry was I don't think he ever, just like America, never recovered from the Civil War. Dylan never recovered from his divorce war. Uh, you know, there was a lot of anger towards, you know, his marriage. In Certainly in uh, Slow Train Coming, he talks about meditation and Buddhism, things like that, which oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. know that his ex was sort of into that sort of stuff. And I think uh, Saved is even even angrier and and more. You know, he was approaching his middle age, and uh, how, how you know, old was he then? I guess he was about thirty eight. Well, he, he would have been forty the year that that um, Shot of Love came out. Was he? Okay. Yeah. So you know, he was right in the thick of it, and it's a very it's a but it's a very it can be a very angry time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, especially if you've just you know, lost the woman and the, you thought you were going to spend your whole life with and, and been dragged through the courts and. There's a lot of a lot of guys get angry around around that sort of stuff, and also quite self righteous and and maybe you know, fall in with a whole new sort of way of thinking <laughs> as well. Yes, exactly. It does happen. But I guess what's on then what happens once he introduces reintroduces those secular songs back, and then Shot of Love comes out. There's a humility, there's a regret in the music which you don't get in any of the Bible bashing stuff, and you can have a song like In the Summertime on Shot of yeah. Love. Which has that beautiful sort of regretful, you know, nostalgic, slightly jaded quality, which is is so much better than just you know, full on from the pulpit ranting for my money. Anyway, yeah, no, I totally agree. I, it's it's much easier to well, it's easier to listen to. I mean, I guess one of the it is interesting to listen to stuff that's very hard to listen. Like the the original version of "Going to Change My Way of Thinking," I find really hard to listen to. But the have you heard the the Mavis the one he does yeah. with Mavis Staples? Oh, the duet. <clears throat> the duet, which I don't know when that was recorded. Oh, uh, was a few quite a lot years later. later. Quite it was a lot later. Late nineties, early two thousands. Oh, was it? Yeah, because yeah, that is so easy to listen to. Yeah. I mean, to me, because Dylan sounds, you know, like that, that preamble when he says, uh, hey, maybe I've been laid up all night <laughs> in bed with insomnia reading Snooze Week. <laughs> well, I think it's a very specific reference to a record that Jimmy Rogers made with the Carter family, apparently, oh, really? which has exactly the same format. Oh, um, really? yeah, but that's, it, it is, it's like a 1930s, you know, the uh, reading from scripts. Well, the, yeah. Dylan loves doing his homework. I half think that the whole thing of the, the Christian thing was, this is great. I can go back to school 
and I can sit and they're going to look after me and I can go for however many weeks it was. Every morning I'm going to study the finest literature with the most beautiful ideas. It then turned out he kind of went for it. He believed it. It, it, it took him over. But I think it feels to me like, you know, this was a good time for him to go and study. It was a, you know, it's like we would go to a pottery class probably. Yeah, well, Dylan, when he, he did go to the, those painting classes with yeah. Norman Rabin, which helped to apparently split up his his marriage. And yeah. this, apparently... He's a studious guy, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about the mixture of the way things mixed with the, when he, when he started to put the, the classic songs, the secular songs, in with the, uh, the Christian songs. And the set list from that night at Earl's Court is it's such a mess. I mean, yeah. there's some great songs in it, but I mean, you have Dead Man followed by Girl from the North Country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it just, wow. There's no, it just doesn't, it doesn't, there's no gelling at all, but it's good. You know, it, it, it's, it's absolutely fine. A slow Train has really calmed down by this stage. So by 1981, it, Slow Train doesn't have any of that terrible, clear-eyed kind of vitriol anymore. It's it's almost a shuffle, and he's you can hear him kind of shrugging his shoulders as he sings mm. it. It's well, the it's trouble changed. no the trouble no more box set is um, is it trouble no more or trouble in mind? I always forget trouble no more trouble no more. Um, they're both muddy water songs. There's a surprise. Yeah, the the trouble no more box set charts the the progress of slow train as much as it does anything. There's like six seven versions of that song on there, and every yeah. single one is leagues different from the previous incarnation. I think the first one, chronologically, is a sound check from even 1978 on there. Yeah, from, from previous tour, isn't it? Yeah, and um, then, by, as you say, by the 81, it's just an entirely different song altogether. Yeah, I think he has held on to it. I think he's played it since, but um, I don't know that I've heard it after. It's on the Grateful album. Dead album, um, oh, yeah. the Dylan and the Dead, and it's not bad, actually, on that album. Yeah, I think it became quite a normal thing for him to play all the way through do, his do older you, years. What do you think about The Train? You I'll mean, tell you what I think about the train. Yeah, go on. You mean, what is the train? <laughs> the tra- I mean, the train, that train thing really sits with me because I'm reminded always of, sort of standing on a railway platform on a cold day waiting for the train to take me to school. You're know, seeing it kind of emerging around the bend uh, out of the trees in the leafy Surrey countryside and uh, it never coming quick enough because I just wanted to get on it and do my homework that I should have done last night. <laughs> But I think it's interesting because, I mean, trains, trains, trains. Hmm. Music is full of trains. Dylan is full of trains. Yeah. But trains normally take you somewhere, and trains are normally, they're a moment of change. And sometimes they're a happy thing. They're, you know, the glory train. But this is this this is a train that's coming towards you. I don't think you're going to get on it. I think it's going to run you over. That's It's it's a threat, isn't it? It's not a... It's not a yeah. It's a different kind of train. And it makes me, it reminds me of the cover of Slow Train Coming because that, mm. deliberately or not, is a very, is very similar to one of the closing shots of Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, oh, which is also e- echoed at the beginning of Blazing Saddles. And in, in Leone's film, in Leone's film, it's progress, isn't it? The train is the, is modernity. It's going to change everything, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wonder it, if it's this force that's coming down the track and it's going to take everything in its wake and it's going to change your life. Ah, okay. I don't so know. This is the, yeah, no, and they're, they're building the track on the mm, That's right. That, that's yes. what I was going to say. It's, it's a work in progress. As because, they are in, in Once Upon a Time in the West, you know. Yeah, I see, yeah. I, I see it as it's going to just knock you down, <laughs> splat you. <laughs> that um, too, maybe, you know. If you're, yeah. But it's, it's a slow train as well. So the other, I'm kind of obsessing on this, but I, I, it stuck with me a long time. 
No, it does. Because, I mean, there's, there's it, Johnny it, Cash trains. There's all sorts of trains. That, yeah. I mean, trains are nearly always that American thing of I'm moving on. Yeah. You know, I've got to go, or she's got to go, or where, yeah. did she, where did the train take her? There's the guilty train as well, trains that took you away. But this is a freight train, isn't it? Because it's slow. It's not yes. a slow train doesn't mean it's the stopping train that takes you to Brighton. <laughs> you know, <laughs> change at three bridges. It's not that one. But it's not. It's, it's not necessarily a freight train, though, is it? It's just a train that is coming slowly towards yeah. you. But it's going to carry on slowly as well. Don't want to speed up later. Yeah. Well, maybe is it? Maybe it's life. You know, maybe it's yeah. life and and de- indeed death. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think ultimately there is a slow train coming for us all. For us all, yeah. Um, hopefully slower, not not picking up speed, as he likes to say. There's somewhere where there's some liner notes on one Dylan album, and, and it talks about on the holy slow train or something. What's that? Oh, there's a very early Dylan song, Train of Travelling. And I think the train in that is, is, is like the business of the world is the train. And there's another, there's an old song, which I think he covers Broken, broken down, engine. down Engine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's like the train as a kind of the business of stuff going on. And he does a Johnny Cash's uh, Train of Love and Johnny Cash's first single yeah. was Hey Porter. You know, there's a lot of trains there. But there's a line in note where he's talking about On the Holy Slow Train and it's nothing to do with Slow Train Coming. It's on another album. I'm convinced of it. But he's got trains on the brain, doesn't he? I mean, there's there's probably dozens of references to to trains. But I've, I think Slow Train Coming is just those three words are, are uh, as you say, uh, Tom, kind of scary. Yeah, and I in just, fact. I- I just wonder I if it's he... more original than it sounds, because it sounds a bit like, you know, like you said, trains, there's a lot of train songs. I think it's a, just that particular coinage might be a little bit more fresh. I've got it, it guys. sounds at first. I've got it. The line of <laughs> notes of Highway 61 Revisited begin, mm-hmm. on the slow train, time does not interfere. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, he's been there a long, a long time. I mean, I think there is also a suggestion that perhaps when he was a kid, he would hear these industrial trains passing through you know a slow train and i hear a slow train at night sometimes mm. we don't live that far from the railway and i'll wake at three in the morning and you hear this kachung 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 and it's freight of some kind you know, I don't mm. know rubble or something and it's very different from a com- commuter train it, it 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 does have a certain ominousness to it but it's also it, I, it's kind of it's a heartbeat thing as well it's quite yeah. reassuring it's where little richard got lucille from li- living near a, a railroad uh, and, and hearing the chuck, 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 chuck. And that's well, where, you yeah. mentioned Little Richard. You know, this is a very nice crossover between the purest rock and run, Dylan's, you know, first influence, really, mm-hmm. um, and gospel. You know, the connections are far more complex than it might at first seem. He's not, he hasn't taken such a great detour, you know, from where he might have been ending up anyway. But I think what really upset people, I know that uh, Leonard Cohen was, you know, pretty famously upset that Dylan actually, you know, bought into Christianity rather than just throwing in the way uh, Leonard Cohen would and indeed the way Dylan would, throwing in all sorts of Christian references that he actually, that he actually bought into it. And uh, well, he would John, claim he didn't buy into Christianity because the particular group, this vineyard thing, he claimed hmm. you're just getting a relationship with God, relationship with God through Christ. But he's not, he was so into it, it wasn't a religion. It was just the truth. So he lost all perspective. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm making your point for you rather than arguing, I think. But it, it was so extreme. And then he could still complain about, about organized religion as he always had. You know, preachers were still being excoriated in his lyrics. Yeah. Because they didn't count. 
you know, the guys he knew were the good guys. And and he did feel that he had it. I, I wonder how he would feel if the audiences, here's a question. I think the audiences, he enjoyed baiting them. I think that was part of the fun yeah. for him. Um, he would not have written all these long screeds or improvised if he didn't really enjoy it. I mean, you only have to listen to the 1966 concerts. Mm, mm. He really got a kick out of trying to mess with people's minds and see how far he could push things. I think that's a really good point. I think he probably thrived on that, yeah. And he got a lot of walkouts uh, in you know the, the, uh, the early year, the first year of, of his um, Born Again tours. Mm. Uh, we had Sylvie Simmons on, the critic. Well, she uh, hated it, didn't she? Yeah, yeah she, she, I think, pretty sure she walked out. She, she said she was bored. She just yeah. said it was, it was boring. Mm. Uh, she didn't realize it was going to be nothing but wall-to-wall Jesus, you know, no matter. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I was the same, you know, I, I couldn't. Um, you know, John, uh, John Lennon was the same, uh, got, had the same reaction. Do you, have you ever heard his uh, Serve Yourself? Yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, it, it's a bizarre and, and quite angry rant. Uh, against serve somebody. Um, and, uh, and he says something like, you may believe in Jesus, you may believe in Marx, and you may believe in Marx and Spencer's, but you're gonna, <laughs> but you're gonna have to serve yourself. It's just a demo that he has on one of his box sets. But it's, it's sort of like, how could you do this, Bob? Well, Lennon had a real problem with Dylan's shifting in identity, didn't he? Because he, every time he did it, he thought he was selling out to a different version. When, when Lennon discovered that, that Dylan changed his name from Zimmerman, he, he considered that an act of betrayal. Yeah, he got very, very angry about his shifting of positions. And he considered it to be, you know, fakery. Yeah, Hmm. I think there might also be some other unpleasantness behind that, actually. I think these people are not as saintly as we'd like them to be. Well, sure. But the whole point about Dylan is that none of this is real. Every identity that he's ever worn is... As you say, it's it's all he seems to care about at the time, but it's sort of an experiment, and then he walks away from it remarkably easily. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if you could argue this was the this was the one where he felt he wasn't wearing a mask, but I, mm. you know, he's on stage, he's doing a show. Whatever happens, he's on stage and he's doing a show. He knows that. It's really interesting when you hear him uh, lying or making stuff up, um, like that. That uh, there's this old. Uh, Canadian show that he was on when he was just starting out, and you can hear this uh, lovely Canadian um, female um, interviewer saying, oh, you know, tell us about your youth. And this was like right at the beginning. And he said, you know, I, I uh, used to travel uh, I, uh, with my family, you know, on the, on the trains. I used to, uh, uh, you know, work in the, in the carnival. And um, oh, what did you do in the carnival? Oh, you know, I, uh, I tended to the elephants. And he just starts making yeah, this yeah. stuff up, you know. And, and she's, oh, really? Wow, this guy's a great guest. This is fabulous stuff, you know. And uh, he's just, it's just like water flowing out of him, you know, yeah. the, 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 what do you call it? You know, the, the fan- fantasy bullshit. But I was uh, thinking, I was thinking about this whole thing—the way he's dealt with the press over the years, and 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 actually the way the Beatles dealt with the press as well, because they both had the same issue, which is that they they were hitting the popular press by you know television and, and papers and radio and everything at the same moment, effectively, which was when that whole controlled nineteen fifties everything run by the press agent kind of way <laughs> was just coming to an end. And they were seen as expressive artists themselves. That was what they were selling themselves on. Hmm. And so the idea of the very conventional, even the way Elvis was kind of managed around all his press, 
you know, he could barely get to the press because Colonel Parker was so on top of it all. And I think they had to do something. And so Dylan told stories and the Beatles made jokes. And occasionally the Beatles told stories and Dylan told jokes. But <laughs> they, 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 they realized that they couldn't be straight about it. That was gone. There was no point in, in just saying the stuff. And also, I think they're on both sides of that. They're smart enough to know if you do that, you burst the bubble. Take every opportunity to be creative or entertaining. And then Dylan does nothing straight, does he? You know, no. I, I, I imagine if he puts his Ocado delivery in, you know, there'll be a little <laughs> note or a little poem or something. Nothing is straight. It just can't be. Because it's an opportunity. It's a moment. Use it. And I think that's actually, that aspect of him is incredibly admirable and and extraordinary as well. Nothing is straight. Everything is an opportunity. You know, even obviously the... Um, the um, the Rolling Thunder review film, where you know mm, so much mm. artistry and artifice was put in, but why not take the opportunity? Don't play it straight ever. Yeah, he doesn't. I think I think in that way. He, he doesn't think seem to think in the same way that we more pedestrian people do. Yeah, I think uh, it was. What can I do with this? What can I do with this? And you know, I think, he'd hear a song and think, well, what can I do with this? I can pinch a bit of that. I can, and he can't help himself. Love and theft. That's what he is. He's love and theft. Yeah, exactly. And also, but also even when he's talking, you know, these, these interviews that we're talking about, um, I, I read uh, again in that um, Bill Flanagan book, something about him saying, uh, I do my best work when I'm talking to people. I do my best composing right. when I'm actually having a conversation with people. Not, not that he's stealing the conversation, that he's got another conversation going on in his head. He's got something else completely going on in his head. And he's just, he's still, his mouth is moving and he's saying stuff. At the same time, he's composing a song. But also he's, yeah, he's bouncing stuff around and he's listening and bouncing and taking stuff and working with it in his head. Stealing, loving and stealing. Tom, where does your, where does your relationship with Dylan's music go after that Earl's Court gig then in 81? Well, it, it kind of went away for a bit, actually. I, I bought Save, I bought a Shot of Love, mm. and uh, thought it was a raggedy mess. Uh, even in my, you know, my young ears, were not impressed. And I was you know, reading the line, and I was, oh, you know, Ronnie Woods in it, Ringo Starr's in it. Can't hear them; they're not doing anything useful. <laughs> What's that about? And 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 I, I bought it because I'd heard some of the songs. The songs were, I think, even being debuted that night. Some of them. Anyway, I, I heard it, I bought it, and, and, and moved on. And that, you know, I went to university, and kind of you know, stuff happened. And I, I kind of got back on the tracks, really, at the beginning of this century, rather shamefully. That's interesting. Which was uh, that would have been that would have been love and theft, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of just decided to fill in the gaps. You know, so I went back and kind of piled up the CDs, which were very cheaply available. <laughs> And have been kind of catching up ever since, really, and then started going to lots of shows. And of course, you know, uh, the, this third golden age, whatever it is, fourth golden age of, of Dylan. I've been yeah. very happy to kind of pick things up as they come along, and I've really enjoyed it. I mean, the whole persona that he's finally made for himself—this idea of the, the the grizzled storyteller, full of uh, wisdom and foolishness at the same time—is. Mm. Is so appealing and so well defined now as well. It works so well. So much for F. Scott Fitzgerald saying that you know American artists don't have second acts. Well, <laughs> Dylan must be on his ninth by at least you know by now. Yeah, and he's read all F. Scott Fitzgerald's books. <laughs> <laughs> it's very well read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. 
Where do you stand with the uh, 21st century stuff? Where do you stand with the, uh, say, the Sinatra um, Great American Songbook stuff? Yeah, I bought them. I like them. I've listened to them. I must say, my, my real reflection on them, I don't go back to them. I don't know about you. I don't go back yeah. to them. But I have really appreciated them live. The last show I saw was what it would have been two or three years ago. I actually went to Belgium for various reasons. Um, well, mainly because we could get a ticket. And he did Awesome Leaves, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just, live, this was an extraordinary mm. moment. I think they really do come off the record differently. I think it, the, the live renderings of these standards, you suddenly realize how well chosen they are and what he can do with them. Uh, I don't think I need to hear them on record very often. Uh, but but live, I think they are a good choice. And and actually, again, the way they interact with his small selection of uh, classic or kind of mid-period songs, live, that can be extraordinary. And and so much more articulate than you think it's going to be. We we, uh, we went to see him a few years ago um, at Wembley. And so not, not the greatest of venues, but uh, one of the things that struck me is when he was... Uh, doing the um, the classics behind that old-fashioned mic, mm. the fact that he uh, he just never stops moving. He, he jiggles, his, doesn't he? Jiggles. He just jiggles and wiggles. Twitches. Wiggle, really, wiggle, wiggle, like a bowl yeah. of soup. And uh, he really is giving it his his all in this kind of bizarre way. It's just, it's totally unlike Frank Sinatra or indeed any other singer would do it. Uh, it's like he's he just can't keep st- Still physically, I'm. I'm even wondering if that's part of his I mean, he, but he's, psychological you know, makeup. You yeah, know? but also, I, you know, you think has he got a, a palsy? Is he having trouble mm. standing still? And is mm. he dancing, or or is he just moving? I'm sure he loves keeping people in that ambiguity. I mean, well, it, uh, it happens to fit, doesn't it? He's, he's always been restless. He's always been searching for the the next thing that people can define him by and then escaping from there just as they're beginning to work it out. But I think he is incapable physically of not moving. You know, when you when you see him interviewed in the Rolling Thunder thing, he's he's kind of rocking mm. backwards and forwards and uh he always is when he's I I don't think I've ever, you know, that that uh, BBC thing where he's interviewing the guy or the guy's in trying to interview him in his uh in his trailer mm. and he's he's drawing his portrait. You know, so again, he's his hands are moving and he's, you know, he's moving. I mean, that is... But I think also there's a thing, there's a line in one of these, I think it's in something off Slantrack, about him being, about shyness interpreted as arrogance. Those, yes. those aren't the words. Mistake, Mistake shyness your for arrogance for, for snobbery. Alo- shyness for aloofness, your silence for snobbery. Silence yeah. for snobbery. Yeah. He's a nervy guy. I think for all the, you know, sort of godlike persona, I think he's, I think there's, there's a lot of nerves going on. I think, he, you know, he's, he's got that nervous energy, but mm. also, you know, hence the masks, hence the having to be loved by thousands and thousands of millions of people. Mm. But I think he's a nervous character. Is there, is there one of his songs that, um, that you really, really can't stand? Is there is there anything that you know? Like, there's a few to me. There's a few of the Born Against it songs that I yeah, think are particularly well, I mean, terrible. Yeah, well, Lenny but. Bruce. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> I read yeah, somewhere yeah. someone said, and it, uh, it's such a pity because it's such a great tune. I thought, no, it's a miserable tune. There's no tune there. Uh, I agree. And some of the lines in it, you'd never cut off any babies' heads. I've got to say, that's it. That's I, it. I that's, like it. That's your way of judging someone. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> Apart from that line, which is just really, really odd. I'll grant you that. Never Ever robbed any churches or cut off any babies' <laughs> heads. Well. 
Well that done. Covers most people, I'd yeah. hope. I would hope. That's true. That's true. I mean, every time I stick a shot of love on, I, I like it more than I thought I did. And every time Lenny Bruce comes on, I think, yeah, this should be rubbish, but I find it quite endearing. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't think you should. I don't think you should write these on the nose appreciations. I think Roll on John is also yes. pretty hopeless. Yes. Yes. Um, and I'll I just think it loses any magic there may have been in what his observations on this person were. And he admits that Lenny Bruce, he was in a taxi once with him for 30 seconds or something, mm. three miles, yeah. nothing. Yeah. And, you know, John Lennon, he knew more, but I think they were pretty unfriendly towards each other, actually. Mm. But that record, it, that song gave me nothing more. I didn't really learn. And it, you know, I think Tempest is a great record. And I, I think some of the sort of focused vitriol in there and some of the kind of the idea of becoming this whatever he is, a kind of washed out gangster after revenge or whatever character is kind of channeling is, is wonderful. Um, but then suddenly we're, we're hearing about John Lennon and it's, um, and I'll go with Tempest as well. The shot, the, the, the Titanic story, that's fine. Hmm. But uh, the, the Lennon one doesn't do it for me. No. And I can't, I, I mean, what is it? You, I'm just interested, Luke, what is it that you like about Lenny Bruce, which I do think is one of his. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, songs. I'm, I'm, I'm hooked in by its charms, even though deep down, I know it's really, really strange. And that, what are its charms? Well, the melody is charming. The kind of, the, the sense of, uh, the sense of history, the sense of love, you know, and then as, as soon as you hold it up to any kind of microscope, you go, What? <laughs> Never cut off any babies' heads. What? This is <laughs> oh, not, there's, this... No, there's nothing wrong with liking it, though. There's nothing wrong with liking it. No, so. no, I mean, that, but, you like no, it because no, you like I'm it. Just, I'm fine. just intrigued because I, mean, I, I, I would like to like it. I would like to like every Dylan song. You know, I, I do like great many. It's you know, not, it's them. not like nails on a on a blackboard, like like it is for, for me, like for for many other people. And and Shot of Love itself, I think, is a really enjoyable album i really i mean when i first i think i went through i got them all in a very strange order and i think at some point in the 90s early 90s i thought oh, i haven't bought a shot of love why is that because everyone says it's rubbish and i went to like tom went to our price and it was there for 2.99 or whatever and i got it home and i put it on and the opening blew my socks off i thought hang on this is this is fantastic it is a good song isn't it the opening yeah. is good it's a really, really yeah, good terrific. opening, and, yeah. and and the end, and the final song is really good. And if you've Love got a it. CD that's got the groom still waiting on the altar on it, that's really good. And then uh, as I've grown older, I've started to kind of enjoy. Like last year, I, I heard in the summertime, as if for the first time, I thought this is a really good song. And Lenny Bruce, I've never had a problem with. It, it's I'm not going to try and defend it in terms of uh, it's you know scientifically in terms of in terms of content, but it's never bothered me, and I'm not quite sure why. I think actually you, you're right to mention Grimm's Still Waiting at the Order because that's the song that actually gives the lie to a lot of what's going on around mm. this period because I think it is a religious song, but it has the density of imagery and strangeness that you recognise from a Bob Dylan song. And and the, the religious side of it kind of gets a bit lost in that and so much the better for that, really. And, and it has that incredible... Um, uh, electric guitar energy to yeah. it. it you know it takes you right back to something of blonde on blonde of course, you know, and of course it wasn't on the record you know no no it wasn't was it it was a b-side and i was in i was in some gig in the 90s to see either the band or dr john or someone and in between the support act and the main act they were playing some music and groom still waiting the altar came on on these massive speakers and I was with my brother who, um, you know, I've got two brothers, but, but but Sam, who who plays the music for this podcast, did not, you know, was not about to be convinced that Dylan's 80s was the great um, <laughs> period to uncover. But he heard this song and he said, what the fuck is this? 
this is fantastic. It sounds like Live 66. And I thought, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a wonderful song. And, and what about some, um, speaking of, I think it, it was left off, Shot of, Shot of Love, Caribbean Wind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just more or less discovered that. I, I've heard it a few times and always found it kind of intriguing, but never really got into it. But I did try the other day. I, I listened to it two or three times and I think it's actually fabulous. Mm. It's completely mysterious to me. There, there's no, no sort of authoritative version, is there, isn't it? Isn't it? No, it's, it's that's right. It's every bit. On the, every on the box set, there's, there's that there's that steel guitar, yeah. pedal yeah. steel version, yeah. which I think is the best version. I think you're it, right. You can hear the words. Yeah. Uh, and also it starts, the, the, the woman he's singing about is from Haiti, which mm. is quite specific and exotic. Mm. Very specific. And then it becomes, I think it's one of those things that, because I, I listen to all the versions and, I, and it gets less good as it goes on. Yeah, but I think that was one of his real. So didn't he? Didn't he chase that song down for months and years and just mm -hmm. couldn't nail it? I mean, there's a very good bootleg version that's never been released, and you think this is the best one, and then this really weird chord sequence comes in, and you think, oh no! And it's, it's exactly that, Tom. It's the sound of someone chasing a song and then losing it. But he's the worst judge of his own music, anyway, isn't he? I mean, it certainly was at this period. I guess when he f he doesn't he has trouble knowing when things are, f are finished, doesn't he? Viz Caribbean Wind and. Mm. Uh, I think also he had too much power at this stage. I mean, I think the record company mm. were pretty much letting him do anything he wanted. Um, and he resented being told to produce a record. And he was saying, oh, records are just because they're all, they're all contractual. That's the only reason I do records, they're contractual. Well, maybe, but you do <laughs> like doing records as well because it's what musicians do. But I think uh, I mean, Shot of Love was going to be this double album of covers, wasn't it? It was going to be oh, I didn't a know sequel. That. Yeah, yeah, it was, was going to be self-portrait again. Was oh, it? I didn't know that. that yeah, yeah. And so he th there are a huge number of offcuts from <laughs> from Shot of Love. It does a mystery train, doesn't he, and things. Yeah, well, and yeah. there's another train for you, exactly. Yeah. So I think he just he'd lost his way. He didn't know. What, but I think that was also him trying to escape this whole uh, the the shackles of the Christian thing being so all enveloping. I think he he knew he had to get out of that. And I guess by doing covers, you're not having to find a new secular voice. I'm just mm. doing some covers. I'm just a singer here. Mm. Mm. And then actually just said, well, let's just somehow merge where we are with where we were and where we're going, and it's all going to be fine. And then, then you get into the 80s. I, I did, uh, there was this And you go running back to Shot of Love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm happy exactly. there. It's Lenny Bruce is great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But he was really lost there, wasn't he? And he was really churning out the contractual obligation albums. But it was, it was sort of pathetic. I mean, it's really genuinely sad, you know. But I think it's a, it's a place in history as well because, you know, we have to remember this generation of, of musicians were the first to grow old while being so popular, while being, they weren't meant to get old. I mean, when he got old, it was fine when he admitted he was old. But at this stage, he was still rolling up his sleeves. He thought he was, mm. I don't know what he thought he was. That's why he's wearing, he's beginning to wear his leather um, yeah, gloves. Yeah, and, and there's your midlife crisis. <laughs> there's your midlife. You know, that's when it really manifested itself physically, didn't it? But it, he, when he went started to do the um, the, the finger picking folk covers, he was finding his way to something something good there. Yeah, and I think the the Sinatra phase and the early nineties goes up into your world gone wrong phase are incredibly similar because they both tally with a huge period of possible writer's block but he didn't write any new songs for seven or eight years went and relearned everything by listening to the old masters and then came back with something yeah and that that's going to school isn't it i mean mm. that's 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 the equivalent of his bible study i think yeah go off and do your homework and 
I don't think I, you know. I don't think he's just stare into space. I think he gets on and does stuff, even if it's ironwork. I get this thing where a record comes out, and not not just from Dylan, but from someone. I think, well, that's probably their last one, and yeah. it's not a bad valediction. It's pretty good. I think that's 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 fine. And I felt that really with um, perhaps you know even with something like uh, Love and Theft. I thought, well, you know, I think he's wrapped things up quite nicely there, mm-hmm. and then bang, yeah. out comes whatever it was modern times and it happened with it when i think when he did the the, the sinatra stuff the first of those mm. well there you go he's kind of moved away from yeah. songwriting that's fine and another one comes it's it shows how foolish it is that we try and impose our own pattern on other people's lives and creativity i was thinking about it's this the other day, but I, yeah. I think yeah. it is yeah. foolish yeah. but we've also been led down this path i mean how many of his albums end with songs that sound like the end of the world from Desolation Road to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands to Highlands, you name it. There yeah. are so many songs that appear at the ends of albums that say, that's it, yeah. I'm done, and I'm out of here. That is just really someone putting a slow song at the end because that's what yeah. you tend to do. <laughs> but I know what you mean. That. But we but absorb yeah. it more profoundly than that. We do. I was listening to Murder Most Foul the other day, and uh, for the first time, actually, I properly enjoyed it. Like, I didn't consider it a, a challenge to get over. And uh, it's always made me very kind of unhappy listening to it. But for some reason, I'd listened to it and I thought, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one to go, go out on. It's, it's, it's got everything. Everything is there. Well, I hope, you know, I, I hope that, uh, that he does make more music. But as I said to you before, privately, Kerry, there's something about rough and rowdy ways in the way that it begins and ends with these songs that sound rather similar. And then when Murder Most Foul comes in, it's basically saying to his audience, this is where I came in. Not just at the beginning of the record, but the beginning of his career to go back to 1963. And it mm-hmm. sounds to me more like an ending than any of his other endings. I hope, I hope I'm not reading anything into that. But I was listening to it last night. Actually, uh, I was thinking, well, you know, I, I like it a lot. And I think, well, but what is this? What, what kind of thing is this I'm listening to here? It reminded me of some of those records by Jack Kerouac. You know, the, he does his records with jazz tinkling away in the background, yes, but they're yeah. spoken word, really. And this was spoken word. It's much closer to that than anything he's recorded before, really. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan? Is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside, immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Listen to the engine. Listen to the bell as the last fire truck from hell goes rolling by. All good people are praying. It's the last temptation, the last account. Last time you might hear the Sermon on the Mount. Last radio is playing.